Romans 11, beginning at verse 25. This is God's holy and infallible word. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient disobedient, in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so we see that Paul erupts in praise and worship at the end of chapter 11. The NIV calls the last four verses a doxology. And you know what a doxology is, right? It's historically the last song of a worship service, but it means literally song of praise. Doxology means praise song. And that's what we have here at the end of chapter 11. Paul's praise concludes this unique subsection of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, that's about Israel. And he really kind of concludes all of chapters 1 through 11 here, because in chapter 12, Paul switches gears. You might remember the big outline of the book of Romans, sin, salvation, service, and if it sounds familiar, it's where the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism likely got their idea for organizing that important Bible study. Chapter 12 starts the service section, and we're hoping to get into that this fall in evening worship after the Summer Evening Elijah series. Having just powerfully and beautifully written all about God's great grace in the previous chapters, it's like Paul can't help but erupt in praise and in worship with this doxology. That really struck me this week as I was struck by someone who, who I was reading who said we could really learn quite a bit about worship through this praise of Paul at the end of chapter 11. We're, we're worshipers of God in all of life, as we often say, in all that we do. Worship doesn't remain in the sanctuary of a church. But we also realize, even as we say we worship God in all life, that there's something very special about worship in the church. 
There's something special about worship with our families or in private. Those set-aside times where, where we, we put the other things aside in order to focus on our God with our praise, with our prayers and his word. It's a very important part of the Christian life. And from this doxology, I believe we can find four principles of worship to help us worship God well, better, and rightly. First of all, true worship always flows from the truth. In his words of praise to God, Paul quotes Scripture, Isaiah 40, 13 specifically, and Job 41, 11. And of course, this doxology comes out an incredible revelation of God's truth in the chapters before it. Reading God's word, knowing God's truth, ignites the worship of God's people. In a recent book on on prayer uh, that someone shared with me, I shared it with the council not that long ago, this little part of it. There's, There's a wonderful discovery there that shared that says that a rich prayer life is usually fueled by Scripture. Christians who have a powerful prayer life inevitably use Scripture as a launching pad, as it were, for their prayers to God. We talk about uh, the discipline, the spiritual discipline of meditation. And we meditate. It's good to meditate. Well, true worship doesn't just come from meditating in general or contemplating general things, but it comes from meditating on God's Word. Psalm 1 says, on your law, I meditate day and night. And so if you want your private worship to grow, consider adding Scripture to your quiet time. Pray, yes, but let's be using Scripture in our prayers. Start your prayer time with a Scripture passage. Meditate on Scripture or even jot down one or two truths from that Scripture and then let that inform your time of prayer. The Bible is to be the foundation of our private worship, but also our public worship. Presbyterians often talk about, uh, and I've talked about this before, but it's been a while, the regulative principle of worship. And it simply means Scripture regulates our worship. I think that's the simplest way to explain it. Scripture regulates our worship. Our, our Heidelberg Catechism uses regulative principle language when it says, and it's talking about the second commandment, we don't worship God in any other way than he has commanded in his word. And so we see that worship comes out from the truth of God's word. And that's why we don't do just anything that we might dream up in worship at Faith Church. We try to keep it simple according to the ways we see Scripture directing us, prayers and songs and and testimonies and teaching and giving. When there are historic parts of worship that may not be specifically commanded, we do them as the Westminster Catechism, another great catechism puts it, when we can reasonably deduce them from the truth of Scripture. For example, the Bible does not say in a verse... Have God's greeting and welcome the people. 
every worship service. In fact, there's not even a single verse that says, have a sermon in every worship service. But these are things that come from God's word that God's people have reasonably deduced from the truth of Scripture. Now, what truth of God's word specifically has been revealed that leads to Paul's praise here? Well, starting at the beginning of Romans, we saw the truth of our total depravity, our sin. Paul said there is no one righteous, not even one. Then he brought us to the truth of God's gift of grace through faith. A righteousness apart from the law has been made known. And then Paul went on. He told us about life through the Spirit, the glory that will be revealed, and how in the meantime all things work for the good of those who love the Lord, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then just before this doxology, there's another great truth, a great mystery that, that people have struggled with, and they've come out in different ways on this. It's in verses 25 and 26. Starting in chapter 9, Paul has been talking about the puzzle of Israel. This was a head-scratcher. His own people, the Jews, who got all the promises... For all those years in the Old Testament, they are rejecting salvation because they're rejecting Jesus. And you know the last few weeks we've been, been reading about the ins and outs of all this. And then Paul concludes the matter with those verses, 25 and 26. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved. What is this truth? What is this mystery? What's Paul saying? Well, first, it's clear that Israel's hardening to the gospel is not permanent. Second, he says, all Israel will be saved. What could that mean? Some people take all Israel. I want to start by saying sound good people come out different ways on on this. Some people have taken all Israel to mean all, and so the conclusion of the matter is all God's people will be saved. That's what all Israel means for some people because in other places Paul talks about everyone who believes in Jesus is the true Israel. All who are Abraham, we're all Abraham's descendants spiritually through faith, even if we're not Jewish. And so maybe Paul is saying, all God's children, and so all Israel will be saved. All God's children will be saved in the end. But that's not really much of a mystery, it seems to me. Why would he call that a mystery? That's kind of obvious. All of God's people will be saved. Others say the Israel in all Israel will be saved refers to Jewish people specifically. Since in the verses before this, after this, Paul has the Jews in mind. That's been his concern in the whole section. What about God's original people, the Jews? 
So when you take this verse with the fact that Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come, and many people believe Paul is talking about a large end-time turning of the Jews to Jesus. All Israel doesn't mean every last view Jew any more than the fullness of the Gentiles doesn't mean every last Gentile. When Paul said earlier, this was in 9 verse 31, he said, Israel has not attained righteousness. He didn't mean every last Jew has not attained righteousness. He's talking about the Jewish people in general rejecting righteousness, when in fact thousands, probably tens of thousands of Jews did receive Jesus. But he's talking about them as a whole. The majority did not. And the alls in our own text, verse 32, don't, aren't all in the sense of every single person. So in a similar way, all Israel no doubt refers to many Jews, but not every last one. In those verses after that verse 25 and 26, Paul backs this up with Scripture. He's showing how it's, this mystery is rooted in God's faithfulness to his promises. He connects it to election in verses 28 and 29. And in verses 30 to 32, Paul shows how this shows God's impartiality to all people. Anyone, Jew or Gentile, may receive Christ and be saved. Cornell Venema, who I think has just a wonderful book on the end times, um, says it follows from this truth, he takes it this way also, that part of our missionary focus must include an interest in preaching the gospel to the Jewish people. God's purposes have not ended for them. Of course, we preach Jesus to all people, but there seems to be something special yet planned for God's original people. I believe that's the mystery revealed here. There's a hardening in part until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and probably that could be a time near the end when most or all the Gentiles among God's people have responded to him. And then it would seem that many Jews could come to faith in Jesus. And, and so we preach, we evangelize in expectation that because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, the fullness of Israel will be saved too, just like the fullness of the Gentiles. Given these verses as believers, we can't help but notice that in the last hundred years, more Jews have professed faith in Jesus as the Messiah than in all the previous centuries combined. It makes you wonder, is God doing something special these days, is the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. However this goes down, we know this for sure. The Bible calls us to be ready because Jesus is coming soon and the Bible calls us to get the gospel out because it will have results. God is gathering his children in from among the Jews, from among the Gentiles, out of this mysterious truth, we don't get it all. People disagree on exactly how it's going to go down. Out of this mysterious truth especially, Paul is led to worship out of the truth of God. 
So that was our somewhat long first principle. True worship flows from the truth. Second principle, the study of the truth embraces worship. A lot of people refer to Romans as the most theological of the books of the Bible. That's why some people love it and other peoples are a little bit are attracted to other books. Paul is clearly quite the thinker. He's very organized, very deep, very profound, but but Paul doesn't only want to know the truth. Paul wants to praise the Lord. For Paul, however much he loved the truth, the point was that it would lead somewhere. And that is especially to worshiping the Lord. You might not know it, but we have two young men in our congregation who are planning on attending seminary this fall. Some people will say that seminary, with all that studying and being in the classroom, is a spiritually dry time. I never understood it that way, and and it has to do with this principle. When you approach God's truth in the right way, you see that the whole purpose is worship. And it's true for all of us as Christians. We don't study God's word in a heartless way. We don't do it as an intellectual exercise. God's word, God's truth is to reach us and and touch us and challenges us and and it, it comforts us and it changes us and equips us in our life. The truth is a practical thing. Otherwise, what's the point? You know, this is why for our our church's mission statement, when we thought about what we wanted to say about the priority of God's word, that's why it's first, we chose the word experience God's word. Because if we just said we want to know God's word, people, that's true, but people might get the wrong impression. The truth isn't just head knowledge. It changes us. It moves us to action, moves us to worship and to adoration like it does for the Apostle Paul here. Third, we could say that a high view of God brings the most joy in worship and in fact leads to worship that is most true. Praise and worship certainly isn't going to come from us thinking we're so great. Praise comes from seeing our helplessness, our weakness, our sin, our failure, and our total need for the Lord. All things that God, that Paul stated in very clear terms in in the previous chapters. Knowing that salvation could never come from us, but is instead 100% from God, that leads to real worship. When, when we bow in, in prayer on our own in the church, we don't give thanks and praise for how great we are or how smart we were to choose God and discover him. Obviously not. We give thanks to and we worship the God who chose us, who before the foundations of the world were laid, elected us in Christ. The fact that God is completely sovereign in salvation, it's all him, That leads to the greatest worship and praise of all. A high view of God is what brings Paul joy. It leads to this praise that that we read. And a high view of God will lead us to the greatest joy in worship too. And so 
Reformed Christians, we have a high view of God. We should be the most joyful worshipers of all because of what we know about God and what we believe and what we say. If our joy is lacking, there's something missing when we're coming into worship, when we're singing these songs and listening to God's word and praying. I wonder if maybe we're missing something then of the truth of how truly great our God is. Maybe our view of him is too low because when we have the biblical view, which is a high view, the praise is going to come out, and it does for Paul. Finally, there's one more principle for worship here, I think, and it's that we don't need to understand everything to worship God. Paul says in our doxology here, how unsearchable are his judgments and his paths are beyond tracing out. So even Paul doesn't understand everything about God. He can't figure everything out, but that doesn't seem to bother him too much, does it? It doesn't block his worship and adoration. This is, I think it's worth saying because I think some people think, and maybe this is more people looking outside in on the church, maybe people who aren't believers, but I think some people think that you've got to understand everything about God and his plan and how he deals with people. And, and his plan for the world in order to worship him and bow down to him. But that's, that would be impossible. And, and Paul knew that. If we could totally understand God and explain him and understand every detail of his ways in our life in this world, would he really be God? God is bigger than us. God is beyond us. Paul reveals this mystery that God is not done with Israel yet, but no one has really figured out exactly what that means. And, you know, it's kind of starting to touch on end time stuff here when he talks about the fullness of the day. Think of other end time stuff. Think, talk about mysteries and Revelation, the book of Daniel. There's, there's much that we can say about that. Uh, there's much that is clear in the Bible, but at, at some point, you have to say, you know, think about the end times. You, you may be a pre-millennial, you may be a post-millennial. I'm a pan-millennial. I just trust it's all going to pan out in the end. And it's not just end times stuff, but with the other truths too. We affirm all that we can and do clearly, and then for the rest we admit his paths are beyond tracing out in the end. And, and we put our trust in, in the Lord who, who does understand it all, even if we don't. Paul says here that God's ways go beyond him, and yet he worships him. He doesn't get hung up on that. He doesn't worry about that. And I think actually probably, right, it enhances his worship and our worship, the fact that God is beyond our understanding. We worship God for all that he has revealed about himself and his salvation and his love and his plan and we worship him for all that he has not yet revealed. All that our puny minds don't quite get and never will. And so we have this beautiful and powerful doxology. Paul's eruption of worship gives us four principles for our worship. 
One true worship always flows from the truth of God's word. And so may all our times of worship be fueled by this word of God. Two, our study of the truth must always lead to worship. The point of our teaching and reading scripture and preaching and learning more and more, the point is glorifying God. This is no academic exercise in the church. Third, a high view of God brings the most joy in worship. And finally, we don't need to understand everything in wor- to worship our God. Whether it's in the church like this, as we gather joyfully week by week at faith, or it's your worship at home, maybe around the dinner table or in the living room with your family, or your own quiet times, may God keep increasing our worship and praise of him, and may he be making it more and more what it should be for him, for his glory.